Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Chris Ryan, host of The Watch, and I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite shows on our network. It's Ringer FC, which is actually two shows. It's Stadio with Ryan Hun and Musa Kwanga going over all of the major leagues in Europe. And it's Wrighty's House with Arsenal legend and British media pundit Ian Wright. And he looks at soccer both through the eyes of an ex-player, but also the larger social context of the game right now in Europe and globally. Ringer FC is your home for all things soccer on the Ringer. And this week, Stadio covered the Newcastle takeover, which is obviously the major story in the global game right now. You can find Ringer FC every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line from the nicest airport hotel in Sarajevo that we could find on short notice, it's Andy Greenwald! Five stars. Five stars. That's how I rate my airport hotels and that's how I rate the season premiere. Action stations. Let's fucking go. Let's get into Succession Season 3. How are you? How are you feeling about this? We just... We watched the the first episode of season three of Succession. It's called Secession. Shout out to Greg Abbott out there. And uh, we are <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> Too early for Cousin Texas. Greg Abbott. Uh-huh. Um, you know, shout out to, to Andy. He's here to talk about Succession with me uh, all season, obviously. This first episode, we're going to do a little bit of a general, general chit-chat about the show. And then we'll get into a beat-by-beat uh, replay of the episode itself. So, Andy, just like first thoughts. I feel alive, Chris. I feel alive. I feel excited. People may not know this, but when I was a young boy growing up outside of Philadelphia, reading TV Guide magazine on the couch while my father watched St. Louis Cardinal games or whatever, I don't think people realize that this is still an emotional business for me. I, I'm not. It's a relationship business and it's an emotional <laughs> well, business. Yes, that's right. And never the twain shall meet. I got into this business because I love television. I love television storytelling. And holy Christ, man, this is like getting the third rail back. This was electric. This felt so good. This was so exciting. It ticked all the boxes of what I want from a TV show at this moment. And honestly, something that hasn't, I haven't felt this in a minute. Yeah. Because it was so thrilling for a show to return, to end, and then after two years, return at the absolute peak of its powers. And... You know, I, I, I heard, because again, relationships business, 
that this episode was screened this week in New York at the official premiere party that HBO threw. Um, again, I, I feel like maybe Casey Bloys doesn't have our updated email addresses. I'm sure it went to spam. Otherwise, we would have been there. And I was told, and people always say this, it played great. You know, they probably mm-hmm. had a big hall. They played it like a movie. It played great. People always say that. And 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 you and I have probably seen movies that played better in a special I, I, I remember personally, you know, the word coming out on the finale of Game of Thrones. And they were just like, played great. Right. So you can have skepticism about what I'm about to say. But I watched this not in a fancy room surrounded by fancy people. And I was like, I wish I was in the Ziegfeld Theater right now, sharing the adrenaline and just the joy and fun and celebration of this episode. Because it was all of it. It was all of it that we've been talking about. All of the excitement, all of the anticipation, all of the the rewatching and finding of gems and things that we loved. Here we go. Here it is. It's back. It's alive. We're not talking about nostalgia or a dead thing. It's back. Yeah, I was really thrilled by how full throttle this episode was. Uh, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of uh, forms of transportation, modes of transportation mm. in this episode. I think I, if I remember correctly, you know, uh, some people on this podcast were a little slow to fall for this show when it first started in, fir- in the hey, first season. Kaya, I, I don't, I don't know who you mean. We, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, those first few episodes, the the softball game, and then sort of waiting for Logan to emerge out of his his uh, coma, and just kind of like a little bit of like a, oh, what is this? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Do we hate these people? Is it important to like them? And obviously, the last season and a half is is TV history. But I noticed in this first episode of the third season just a, an incredible swagger to everything yeah. that was happening. Not only in terms of uh, moving all the chess pieces around in the narrative, but just like a facility with the jokes, a facility with the characters, the characters already having kind of been beaten down and built back up again and beaten down and built back up again. You have that kind of collective scar tissue with them. So I just thought it was like amazing to see this show I, you know, the one thing I was going to ask you is if there was any, um, if it took you a second, because it actually did take me a second to get used to the idea that it's been two years since we've seen Succession and this episode of Succession starts 10 seconds after the last episode of Succession. Not at all. I was thrilled that it did. And I, and I can't believe I ever doubted Jesse Armstrong or his team and his staff's decision making in this. Did you, you know, ever doubt I, that? I, no, I, I not doubt, but I guess... It was a, I wasn't sure. Will it begin moments after? Will we do a time jump? What will they do? I, there was never any doubt, but I guess that I wasn't sure what they would do. And I think the answer would be at this point in the show's run and our relationship with it, have confidence in the choice they're making. Uh, it's going to be the right one. And what was so thrilling about it for me was I feel like there are people in life, and maybe we're among them, Chris, since we just had dinner together last week, who after a, a delicious meal mm. are like, let's take a moment. Let's reflect. Let's let's think about this. Let's digest in all senses because that was good. We were present for it. We enjoyed it. And let's let's take a moment, take a pause to appreciate not just the noble beast that was slayed, or in this in our case, the sea urchin that was plucked from the ocean to feed us, but just the the, the moment in time where we shared this table together. And then there are people who are like, "That was good, but maybe I'll have a cheese course later, or maybe right. I'll have a snack at home." Those who gorge, or, or yeah. not just gorge. You know what's exciting about finishing this meal? Breakfast is in 10 hours. Right. And I'm going to have... That's the way I felt about Jesse Armstrong and his writer's room watching this episode. You know, we have spent two years, and again, nobody planned for it to be two years, basking in the glow of a perfectly turned and executed meal, Mm -hmm. which was the second season. 
in retrospect, we were talking about the rewatch that we've done uh, last week. In retrospect, the season is coursed brilliantly. It's all there all the time. We just didn't see it as it was happening. So obviously the two-year delay wasn't in any way intended, but it did cause this thing where we and many others, I would imagine hundreds of thousands, if not millions of new fans who have embraced the show and binged it uh, during the pandemic, got to savor. How great. Jesse and his team were not savoring, right? They were already onto breakfast, lunch, and dinner and planning I would imagine, decadent desserts for the next nine weeks. And what I felt from this episode that was so thrilling and gratifying was hunger to get back to these characters, to get back into the action. Not to be like, oh, we've moved our chess pieces to just the delicious checkmate and we should feel good about that and let's take a step back or reflect on it or any of those other ideas. It was, let's fucking go again. Yeah, We got everyone to the precipice. It is time to jump off of it. And that's the kind of confidence you want in someone driving a show that is as, well, as thrilling, but also as story dependent as this one is. You know, they, the succession uh, typically operates with, I mean, primarily an A and a B plot. Like there will be the literal who will succeed Logan. Will there be a succession plan? Which of these children or executives are going to take over the company? And then there is sort of like a group B of like a couple of different plots, both relationship plots, but also... You know, in the past, it's been like Stewie and Sandy's takeover bid or taking like the uh, the Roy's attempt to taking over the Pierce family's holdings or Roman blowing up a satellite, like those kinds of things that are just kind of like pepper the pepper the rim of of the story around succession. This episode primarily it we we have like kind of quite literally seen this before where Kendall is attempting to take over the company in a reckless but possibly inspiring fashion. And the kids are left to decide whose side they're on while their father decides just how much bodily and emotional pain he wants to inflict on Kendall in the process. Any kind of thoughts about, like, the, how did this version of, of mm-hmm. K- Kendall, Kendall's coup feel different than the ones from the past? Well, one thing that I think, again, the show is just so masterful about is understanding our time spent emotion invested in history with the characters in the world. It is just night and day to be going through something like this with not just Kendall and Logan, but at this point with Frank and Carl and Jerry, everyone all the way down to, you know, I don't know, number 30 on the cast list, all of whom are brilliant. The stakes are different, not just for Waystar Royco, uh, in, I mean, which is currently going through what, what did Carl called the, the basket, the full Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors of fuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's our connection to them and our relationship with them, you know? And I think that it's not just more emotionally engaging. We care. And it is not just that the show is smart, that when it replays dynamics, you know, the season finale of season two was literally all of the inner circle going around a table and judicing each other. We just saw that this episode ran it right back. Mm -hmm. But the brilliance of the show to me lies in the fact that it's very self-aware about it. So when, once again, Carl and Frank hitch up their boots and try to make a pitch for their sorry asses again, (laughs) having not slept or apparently eaten, you know, a a Yugoslav sandwich since the boat, it's, there's pathos. I mean, it's pathetic. And they know it's pathetic. And we know they know. And so that kind of depth that we build over time, I think, is primarily what makes it different. And I think I want to steer it. You might want to do this specifically when we get into the 
you know, the, the TikTok of the episode, but I, I can't help it. I got to go right to it. So you, you kill me for this because I almost never do it, but I did take notes. I love it. Haven't done it since Thrones, but I was <laughs> did taking notes. you take notes. them longhand? Cause you're holding a pencil. Like it's like a, I always a, take them a magic wand. Yes, well, yes, because I have to, I'm watching the episode on this dumb computer. Yes. I know you can airplay, but I don't have a TV in here. See, this is the problem um, is like when I take notes about an episode on my computer, yeah. I'll be like midway through a sentence and I'm like, Ben Simmons did what? You know, like I yeah. just get distracted <laughs> by the internet. Right. You got it. You can't do a second screen. You got to do a, the, the, the page, man. Yeah. Like the yeah. bird did. Um, so I wrote, and I'm going to show you, Chris. I circled it. Didn't Kendall have a wife and kids? Come on now. <laughs> I say this as, you know, the ambassador from Daddington Island on yeah. this podcast. But also I was like, I forgive them. That's fine because historically on television shows, even very good ones, characters having children can, is really an unforced error. Yeah. Uh, you do you want to tell that story? Do you want to spend time with child actors and age them up over time? Are you are you interested in pausing the you know the economic hunger games of this show and instead focusing on like Kendall going to a mommy and me music class? Like you don't want to do that. No, we don't want that. Please, so we're please, all fine. Please just don't. We're fine. To Jesse Armstrong and whoever's listening, like, let's just not. But the truly masterful writers in the medium and showrunners don't look at uh, previous story decisions as problems or crosses Mm -hmm. to bear. They mine them for opportunity. Yeah. Where can Kendall go in Manhattan to set up shop? What do we have? What have we introduced and how can it help us? How can it serve us? It's not something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced. Okay, so we, he can go to Rabba's house. So then you have another series of decisions. And again, they make the right decisions time and time again. Do we need to see him with his children? That's not going to help us right now. It's not yeah. going to help him. It's going to distract from the narrative. It's better not to do it. But what can we do? We can see another shade of Kendall's absolutely crushing insecurity and immaturity and neediness and the faces. I mean, this is Jeremy Strong. Like, I don't know whether he was just like meditating on a mountain, like old master splinter in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons during the off season, but dude came ready. Yeah. His face, when he walks in, he's like, did you see it? Did, did I do, did I, did I do a good job? And the way that he's, it, he's so hungry, it's hungry and it's thirsty and it's desperate. And we get Rava back and we understand the, the, just the architecture of this broken man's shattered life. Well, he spends life. most of and the second amazing. season like a half-eaten hot dog, you know, like, for the, and then <laughs> so finally we get manic, cokey Kendall back speaking that C-suite slang. And it's kind of exciting. It's exciting, but, uh, you know... We, I mean, we as a viewer, I'm not, like, I'm not excited for the inevitable like self-destruction, as no. Roman points out, where he's like, because Kendall loves to do that. Like, I'm not excited for that for him, but yeah. But when we were talking about it last week, I think it was floated as, a, if we were going to find a criticism, is Ken's constant yinning and yanging and, and changing, or whatever the, the right uh, analogy is, is it consistent in a way that makes us understand him or is it serving the story or the beats of the season mm-hmm. or whatever and i think what was so great about this episode was it allowed us to see because the kendall that ends season two is a, a appears to be a completely new kendall one we have not seen before right where he is confident, righteous he's, he speaks yeah really beautifully off the cuff rips up the paper walks out he's a boss all of a sudden he he is a ceo at least in his head for what's great for about 15 minutes yeah <laughs> and that's the end of the movie but a TV show, if it's done well, so much of it is uh, the end of The Graduate for 
an episode or yeah. a scene. It's we did it. Um, and now we're stuck now in what? traffic outside of this building and Carolina wants to get out of the car. And what do you or do I'm next? Or I'm sinking into a panic attack in a bathtub. You know, it, he is always this person. He cannot escape himself. And the drugs maybe, you know, are, are rocket fuel towards one extreme or the other. But I loved the version of Kendall we saw in this episode because it was so true to both sides of him, how inextricably linked they are, how broken he is, and how it's just, yeah, he could get sober. He could find a good relationship. He could finally lash out against his dad. But in this vacuum, come on. There were two points. If he's in the flower sack, he's the weevil. He's the weevil. There were two parts of this episode that I thought were really fascinating in terms of, I, I, I really don't care about does succession exist in, in our world or what you know have the did the dodgers beat the giants in the world of succession like i don't i don't really care was about that the a strike reality or timeline did that guy yeah did that guy's bat cross the plane of the plate but what i was kind of fascinated by were two mentions one obviously the raisin and mm-hmm. getting the raisin a second term which is sort of a tacit acknowledgement of trump but also sort of i mean for what it's worth seems to put what what, do you, what were you gonna say is it though well, that, i wanted to go to this too because like, is Raisin a nickname for Trump, or is it just a sign that in this universe there is a Trump-like? Oh, see, that's interesting because I thought it was obviously Trump, and I thought that the person that Jerry calls is clearly like a Kellyanne Conway figure. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't think you're wrong. I think you're exactly right. I think that you received it as it was intended. I think that in this kind of you know one step to the side universe where Fox doesn't exist, but this is Fox, they have installed a law-averse president (laughs) who Uh they think of as a plaything, right? And the worlds of media and celebrity and politics and justice are all commingling in extremely disturbing, if not illegal ways. And that's enough. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I I, I feel like if they had been like the Cheeto or whatever, then we all know what it is. But if it's a pet nickname for someone who maybe he's just very wrinkly, we don't know. That's true. But I... But I, but I think that that's also a great example that you bring up of, I keep coming back to this. Maybe this is my, my th- thesis for the podcast, which is great because I've never done a podcast with you with a thesis before. But it's decision-making mm-hmm. up and down the line. And one of the first things we learned about season three, even before we knew the start date, let alone the premiere date, was that it got out or Jesse Armstrong said that he's not doing the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And partly that was because these scripts were written, they were going to shoot right when everything shut down. But also, I think the line that that got out, maybe it was from the New Yorker profile, was, well, it didn't affect rich people anyway. All valid, all true, but just big picture, I was so happy that there were crowds of journalists and nobody was wearing a mask. It's like, the, honestly, at this point, it was like, it would be like Kendall hugging his kids, like, not now, not now. I don't want that story getting in the way of this story. This story is too good. Yeah, you know, when we were talking about Squid Game over the last couple of weeks, I think one of the things that we really latched onto was this idea that it was um, not of our world, but about our world. You know, like that there weren't, that there were obviously, like it it was set in a kind of reality that commented on our reality. Uh, I feel the same way about Succession. I feel like this is, they do a very good job of putting it in our world, but not exactly in our world. You know, the other really funny note of of a world outside of, the frame of succession was when Kendall goes to Rava's apartment to set up his war room, his panic suite, uh, <laughs> and it was a crisis suite. And he's basically like, um, you know, did you see my speech? Did you see my, my big moment? And she's yeah. like, yeah, I've just been really up against it with work. And it's like, there is like 
because this show is so expansive, it has a huge ensemble and they often excel at bringing all these different characters, putting them in a box and letting them like attack one another. You don't really think that much about whether or not anyone outside of that room gives a shit about what's happening. And there was that yes. brief moment where, of course, Robin maybe has reasons why she is like, I'm not really here to participate in Kendall's Hamlet routine anymore. But I thought it was great that she was just like, yeah, you know, I was busy with work today, so I didn't get a chance to check you out, like trending against, you know, the Pope. Against tater tots. Tater tots, I, I'm right. S- I'm so glad you mentioned that point. That was what I was really appreciating so much about this episode is that when you are inside the whirlwind, things seem pretty exciting. Yeah. Even if you're not objectively pro whirlwind, like, man, I thought that table was bolted down. I better grab it. Oh no, it's all happening. And that can be thrilling. It can be certainly diverting. It can be sustaining for a short time, but then is it in any way fulfilling? Mm -hmm. Is it anything more than just the busyness. And I think that that speaks to one of the real, um, really genius aspects of succession, which is that I I can't remember the time I was this invested in on an excited uh, nervous system level with a show since, I mean, there were aspects of Game of Thrones, but really maybe Breaking Bad in terms of like, what is going to happen next? I need to know. Breaking Bad was literally life or death because people were dying. On this show, no one is dying. It's bloodless. It's stupid, frankly. It's Mm -hmm. all nonsense. It's all made up shareholder confidence, verbiage, money on paper. It's absolutely a show about nothing. And because of that, it is is our this generation's version of Seinfeld, I think, in the sense that it is fundamentally about nothing. But by being about nothing, it's about everything. Because that all-consuming whirlwind is kind of an incredibly devastating metaphor for how we spend our time, whether it's on Twitter or arguing about stuff that doesn't matter or toiling on things that are just content and vanish into the ether. It's busyness. Yeah, what what does Greg say? He's just like, it's really positive, but the negative stuff really sticks in your mind because it's so visceral. (laughs) But also he's just like, I don't know, man. You know, the the internet's really big and I haven't read all of it. It's... I, that that was really resonating for me in this. The idea yeah, that you know, to your point, someone that, else that, has a job. That Roman bit where he, when they're kind of breaking down what their response should be to the papers, and he's just like, they're fake or they were stolen. <laughs> or yeah. like, do you care about the papers? Like who, like his way of, he, the way he just sort of dismisses what has essentially been the MacGuffin of the first two seasons of this show yeah. is amazing. And, and I think that in that way, the show is perfectly positioned to be so profoundly about the Trump years in America, which, you know, in many ways we're still living in, where an entire foundational bedrock uh, conception of America was just, eh, whatever, whatever, yeah. right? Like, so, you know, this matters. We There's a separation between this and this, and, and rule breakers are punished, and, we, you know, this is how we represent ourselves in the world. And then you have the people in the positions of power being like, but what if we didn't? What'll happen then? I right. dare you. And guess what? Nothing happened. And <laughs> that's the world that these characters find themselves in, right? Because it is just, I mean, we were joking at the beginning that it's a relationships business, but call the president. What's his temperature on this? Is the AG feeling feisty? It, what about the Southern District? You know, what about the shareholders? Do they Are they in a bad mood today? Like, mm-hmm. what, what if Kendall had used the wrong bathroom? Does it all come crashing down? Who knows? It means everything, but it doesn't matter. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, 
Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Let's get into the episode itself, which is essentially like a two-track story with uh, dealing with the fallout of Kendall's news conference. It's Kendall in a convoy eventually winding up at his ex's house and entertaining a court of kind of like basically Logan Roy-esque court of hangers-on, lawyers, executives, PR consultants, all these different people. He's doing that in Manhattan. Meanwhile, uh, the other side of the coin is Logan and his mobile sort of uh, <laughs> like just absolute clusterfuck situation moving from, I guess they were in Croatia at the end of season two, uh, and to, as Frank says, I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of the Balkans. They go to Sarajevo. <laughs> now, the number one question I had coming out of this episode, and I think it's yeah. the one that most people will have, is have you picked your non-extradition treaty country that you would like to most be stranded in? I hadn't, but I have to say, when the list of potential destinations was read aloud to the audience and to and to an increasingly incredulous Fisher Stevens, um, it was a roller coaster. Kuwait, Lebanon, uh, but also the Maldives and the Maldives. Yeah. Yeah. Like has everyone, everyone has seen the photos of what resorts look like there where they're just on like, like limbo sticks on the perfectly turquoise water. Like I'll go there. Is it really a choice? I mean, maybe you have to gas up the jet a little extra. It's a long season. They may hit all those, those hot spots. I would love it if they go to uh, to Qatar or or something. That would be pretty amazing. I think you maybe do some World Cup planning. Yeah. Personally, I would have gone to Bosnia because I've been to Bosnia uh, briefly. Oh. I made a, it was like you had to, when I was in Croatia, there was one moment where you had to like basically go into Bosnia to get out of Bosnia. Like it was, you know, like how in the Jersey Turnpike sometimes. Like you get to pay tribute. <laughs> you're I'm like, sorry, oh, I'm go in on. Pennsylvania and now I'm in New York, you know? Like, oh, 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 <laughs> yes. No, when you're driving, yeah, when you're driving on, what is it, 87 or whatever, the New York Thruway and they're like, <laughs> Welcome to Pennsylvania. And you're like, excuse me? It's like, thank you for visiting Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's my Bosnia experience. Let's come back to New York. Um, but it seemed lovely, yes. you know? 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, I, 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 maybe I shouldn't have been wasting time doing this, but I was like staring at the frame of the the Bosnian airport, being like, "But is it Teterboro? Like, what oh, was? Th- well, they wind up in Sarajevo. Yeah. Oh no, right. but I just mean what I mean is, I am. Look, hopefully over the season we'll have the opportunity to talk to many people involved in the show. Um, that would be great. But well, I'm sure like Brian Cox on a podcast would be a great get. I really want to talk to the the, the production manager. Yeah. You know, I want to talk to the line producer. I just want to know because I, I maybe I, this is my basic cable brain. Where was that Van every, Nice with a nice filter? <laughs> a, yes, and I mean, like the show is still wink, wink, filmed in New York. But like this is the show where for the opening shot, and we this was actually some of this was in the New Yorker profile of Jesse Armstrong, where it's just like this this season of Succession. A drama on HBO without dragons begins like Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they got the helicopters. So <laughs> I, I should stop wondering about this and just assume they were like, "Get me the most handsome airport exterior in Sarajevo. We'll get Sarah on a plane from Australia or whatever." Um, so I want to. We can we can go whichever direction you want. We have Kendall in the car going to Rava's, and we have Logan on a plane going to Sarajevo and staying at this shitty airport hotel. Uh, I think I'd like to start with Kendall just because. One of our deeply shared uh, passions is um, Mm -hmm. jargon, you know, and this is why we love the scripts and films of Tony Gilroy, like Michael Clayton, where just like the entire piece of dialogue is written in the vocabulary of whatever this person does as a profession. So in Kendall's Mm -hmm. case, he is a fucking empty C-suite suit. And he speaks C-suite so well. Like, as you mentioned, the weevils in the flower sack, um, slide the sociopolitical. <laughs> a, a clean jar. Yeah, I need a he sealed unit. His- <laughs> I need a sealed unit. I need a clean jar. And he asks Greg to slide the socio-political thermometer up the nation's ass and take a read. This kind of continues throughout the episode, like when he basically takes over the PR pitch and starts talking about, well, you know, this is a change of the weather. You know, I'm doing a Times op-ed. I need the BoJack, the Bojack guys writing my Twitter. Yeah. And then, and then um, when they said, do you want like spicier tweets? And he says, that's the straight leg Chino way of saying it. <laughs> and then they're just like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. He, you know, Jeremy Strong, like we said, spent, spent season two in the Hurt Locker for the most part. And, you know, you can make, you could make like whatever argument you wanted to m- make about like, well, is anything ever really real on this show if everything gets kind of sacrificed at the altar of the ultimate burn or resetting the clock? But I just like watching him in trying to, to like do the control center from the back of like what might not be his car anymore. And Carolina <laughs> just being like, I need to get the fuck out of here. She gets out. And by the way, this is the incredible thing about this show and its theory of next man up. Like the person who gets into the car, who has been on the show since season one, but yeah. I finally just like clicked is Juliana Canfield as as Jess, right. who's amazing and does the whole like grind your bones to make his bread scene. And she's on Why the Last Man. I mean, you know, these are top quality actors who can carry other projects sliding into the back of a Suburban to just play verbal squash with Jeremy Strong for six minutes. You know, it's it's pretty dope. So let me ask about the Kendall stuff. You know, uh, obviously, essentially, dead man walking for up until the last moments of season, the finale mm-hmm. of season two, when, you know, his father asks him, tells him to take the bullet for the family and the company 
and say that he was responsible or oversaw this culture of um, paying off uh, complainants about about what happened on the cruise lines. And then he goes to New York and he makes, you know, he turns it around on Logan and proves Logan wrong about the, you know, you're just not a killer thing. This kind of pops up again when the joke about OJ comes up and (laughs) Kendall pretty flippantly was like, you know, who's to say I haven't killed a person and my eyebrows shot up because that's the first time he is really jokingly or not acknowledged what happened at the end of season one and is the essentially the, the, you know, it's, it's the collateral that his dad holds on his soul. Did that make an, an impact on you at all when he's like, the juice is loose? I mean, that was very funny. It was also the show at its best because it was extremely jarring. For the same, for the, I had the same reaction you did because Kendall does not speak about it. The last time it was spoken about was with Kendall saying he deserved to take the fall on the yacht last season. Mm-hmm. And Logan and not like, only brushes it away. This. I should pay for this, yeah. But Logan brushes it away, not just in this way that he brushed it away legally in every possible sense in the previous, at the, you know, at the conclusion of the previous season. He basically says no real people were hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nothing real happened. And so what's exciting is Kendall's behavior can be interpreted one of two ways. I mean, either he truly has bought this line and his soul is collateral for it, or it's right there. It's dangerously close to the surface, mm-hmm. you know? And, 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 I, and I think it's a very when we talk about decision-making, it's an intentional reminder that, to, and I think you just expressed it exactly, that like Logan can bluff and bluster and threaten until his next-born child to suck his dick before closing the door to a, you know, to a limousine. <laughs> he said his allegations of sexual assault before <laughs> he, 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 he knows what Kendall did. Yeah. He, he could, it's all business to a point, but he also could truly end him as a human being. Sure. A, at, that, a, at this point, I do have to, I mean, just purely speculating. It's kind of hard sometimes to like, to speculate or cast kind of like the way that mm-hmm. we would with maybe some other mm-hmm. uh, very narrative dependent dramas. We might be like, I don't know if this is going to work and how, maybe this is how they, they progress in this. With this, it's like, I guess Logan could, that's his ultimate trump card is to say like, my son is actually a murderer uh, or a manslaughter. But, think, but, but that would also kind of implicate would. Logan at this point as well. And it's the same reasons why there's no COVID on the show. You know, the show's ethos is showing people for whom certain consequences and stakes do not exist and do not matter. Other consequences and stakes exist. And, you know, and through the, the, the mastery of the storytelling, we have come to be invested in those, both in terms of the characters as fully developed fictional people, but also as proxies for our own feelings and about the world. But no, I, I don't think there will ever be a price paid for that because that's what the show is trying to teach us and trying to trying to show us. While we're in that place, yeah. the grinder bones to make his bread thing, and, and, and you get the, the Logan's, and it's on the phone, and he, he can't hear it, and he's like, put it in an email and send it to yourself. I mean, <laughs> I, it's so delicious, which is a word I keep coming back to about this show. And, you know, I think, in I don't, was it in the Vulture or the New York Magazine story where Jesse Armstrong is sort of uh, bristles at the implication that someone on a podcast, I'm sure not us, was treating the show like uh, like sports, sports yeah, right. basically. And I'm just here to say, this show is not sports because if this show, if sports were this show, there would be grand slams every inning of a playoff game. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like the thing about sports is we watch it through clenched fingers hoping a miracle happens. And the beauty of sports is that every so often it does. This show 
isn't sports because it is so absolutely exquisitely planned and choreographed. What's so exciting for me when watching that scene when dad calls on the iPhone inside the so-called clean jar is you're like, of course the scene's going to come next and I'm going to savor the scene. And you know, in the writer's room, they were like, well, he's got a call. What's he going to say? And that must be the most fun day these writers have, you know? But I guess that day happens every day for them where they're like, now these characters, and then they're like, and tomorrow, what will we work on before we order lunch? Oh, well, uh, Jerry and Roman are going to be in a room together. Oh man, tomorrow's going to be a great day. I mean, it's thrilling. Yeah, they are really, really good at uh, controlling the dials about when things happen, how things mm-hmm. happen. In the back of your head, you're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to wait five episodes for Jerry and Roman to see one another again. It's like, no, nah, it's going to be like five minutes. Um, you know, and the the double crossing and the uh, about facing happens so frequently that it almost becomes a learned language within the show. You don't get yep. kind of annoyed with Shiv changing her mind every five minutes because usually there's something that's happened that's uh, precipitated that. You know, she is betrayed by Kendall, then she goes to New York and she's betrayed by Logan. So she's now, she's presumably on her way back to Kendall. So we should talk about that, right? Yeah. Like that, that was, um, that might be, you asked before about, have we seen certain things happen before and how does that affect our experience as a viewer? I wondered about that moment because unless we are going to be totally knocked on our asses, she's going to Kendall's. Um, and yeah. there's even a little bit of a, more of a hanging Chad than I expected when he, when Kendall is talking to uh, Lisa. And he's like, yeah, that might work out anyway. Right. Exactly. So I'll be curious to see, are they just not bothering to hide the ball because it's obvious at this point, or is there another shoot a drop? I mean, obviously allegiances are always shifting long-term in the show, but that does make sense. And, you know, the show doesn't go in for kind of portentous foreshadowing, but Tom being like, you're going to see him again. You know, she is going to see him again. I'm sure the cast will be reunited, but it does suggest a longer separation. And sure. that tarmac goodbye was yeah. And I think that there's always been a certain emotional connection between Shiv and Kendall, as as best exemplified in Safe Room when they have that. It's not going to be me hug. That doesn't exist between Kendall and Roman. So that even though they kind no. of check out for each other, and Roman comes and finds Kendall when I think it's in Argestes when Kendall goes. Uh, on a bender and you know like i think that kendall obviously cares about roman having been taken hostage they also have that like kendall used to torture me mm-hmm. element to their their relationship that i think is interesting to kind of watch play out like there's a little bit more i think affection between kendall and shiv than there is between kendall and Roman. but you know obviously also a lot of it is played for for laughs what else about kendall's side of this episode did you want to talk about did you want can we should we talk about the the pr firm with uh dasha from red scare <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I, I'm trying to think about anything else. His to say smarmy about the kind of like you're a superstar. So, we have so many great women around us. Shit is so funny. I mean, that whole moment is just. It's kind of a masterpiece in miniature. You know, to be pulled out of the meeting because Rava cries out, and Greg has opened the wrong magnum of wine. I mean, just like look at where the tone that the show sets and exists in, you know, just that. It's not that he broke a glass or spilled something on one of Kendall's, you know, missing children's uh, artwork or something. Opened a magnum of wine that Rava's godmother gave her that she Mm -hmm. was saving. And all the little great, and this is the theatrical part of the show that I treasure so much, is that, you know, um, uh, what's her name, Naomi? Yeah. 
Who just, comes just over? I, I know it's been a while since we've been in New York, but where do you think all the small plates are from? Like, where do you think she picked up food from? Let me circle back. I can tell you that. But she, but she's like, show, you know, while this crisis is going and her new boyfriend's ex-wife is upset emotionally, she's just grabbing the heavy crystal wine goblets. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter. She knows it's just, it doesn't matter. These people do not have emotional a- a- affection for things because you can always get more things. Sure. And in that moment, it's telling us so many different things about each of the characters and how they feel about the world and each other. And it, the cherry on top is Kendall being like, oh, I love smart women or whatever, right? And I must be doing something right. Okay, to your point about the dinner, I've I thought about this. Okay. And I a lot of it depends on location. So okay. I you think Rob is off Central Park? The question about yes, I mean of course, but the yeah. question is how far north is she? Because if she is like trending Lincoln Center to Upper West Side, I first thought that it was from Red Farm on Broadway, which is great kind of, you know, Chinese. This is why you're the king is like, you haven't been in that city for a decade. You still have it all locked up. Like you haven't been in a decade, five years. I moved. I still, I got a little bit, I got a little mojo left. So I thought that I thought that, but then I was like, no, this is succession. She's incredibly rich. I think that it's from Damaka, which I may be saying wrong, but that is the hottest restaurant in Manhattan right now. And it's incredibly like vibrant and like spicy and fully alive, uh, food from India where you can also get things like lamb testicles. And oh, cool. I feel like- Well, th- that's for she, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> that will, like that would be, that's probably like on the writer's room floor. Like I just feel like she probably, being who she is, went to a place where you can't get a reservation. And this is on like, it's on like Delancey and Essex, like down there. And uh, she probably just somehow has the hookup, right? Where you can get it to go. Right. The only other That's thing I thought. really wanted to mention about the Kendall stuff is like just a, past off, a kind of cast off line that he gives to the PR duo uh, where he's just like, I want to kind of assemble a, a coherent philosophy is what he says. And it, it yeah. begs the question as to whether or not there was one. You know, like Kendall's uh, kind of opposition to his father is way more of an internal family dynamic than it is necessarily a cultural yes. conversation about whether you could have a more just company or a more socially conscious version of Waystar Royco. Because the most socially conscious version of it would be to shatter the company. It would be yes. like, I actually do want to the, break this thing apart. Do you know what is not spoken about in this episode, by and large? No one talks about like fiduciary responsibility and management. Nobody talks about, you know, over leveraging or, you know, responsibility owed to shareholders. Certainly no one talks about the women in the cruises other than, you know, Jerry being like, are you exposed to Roman? Mm-hmm. None of that is at stake here. And when Kendall sits down with the people who are going to be steering his whatever it is, because I think that's what's so uh, what's so funny about the episode is what it's ultimately so hollow. Mm-hmm. He's not saying he's going to combat Stewie and uh, and what's his name, uh, Larry Pine's character. Like he's not joining them. He is not uh, attempting his own nece- necessarily. I don't know what his standing is to launch his own hostile takeover bid again. And he's not doing it from a perspective of hashtag justice. Sure. He just says point blank to Lisa, like, I'm going to take down my father. Yeah. And I'll she's be like, what puppet. did I just Tell sign me, up for? Right, exactly. Yeah, he just I, wants to be someone's puppet. Both of, every, almost everybody who comes to the apartment, I guess with the exception of Naomi, is kind of like confronted with, oh, this guy has no idea what he's doing. Or this guy is completely full of shit. And everybody winds up signing on, maybe because they think he's going to win, maybe because of the money, or maybe because 
they want to go along for the ride. But it is kind of a fascinating, repeated behavior in there. The second, I guess the second half of the episode or the other side of the episode is all this stuff happening in and around Logan. I got to say, fucking Fisher Stevens is just such a great face for this show. Like they, they pick, it's not only the best actors and the, you know, the people who are just so obviously able-bodied when it comes to dealing with the seemingly improvisatory nature of the show, even though I'm sure it's all written. It just feels mm-hmm. like very natural, but also like the faces, the faces who have, of people who are nominally very powerful, but get told fuck you all day long. <laughs> and yes, and I... Fisher Stevens has the perfect face for that. He's amazing. I, you, anytime someone shows up, you're never... This happens in other shows where a new character is introduced or even a background player. And we have the same feeling we have when a friend brings a friend that we don't know to our house. I don't know about you yet. We'll right. see. That's not the case with Succession. I wondered, I was thinking about this. Frank Rich, the longtime uh, New York Times theater critic and eminence grease of a whole world of New York journalists and writers and, and critics... Um, is an executive producer of the show, mm-hmm. a role he also served uh, on Veep. And I don't have any idea what his contributions are, other than you know, he's clearly a very smart guy, and I'm sure he's a value add to any project and brings a certain class and distinction and point of view. But it never occurred to me until reading the J. Smith Cameron uh, profile that's in the LA Times today, that maybe one of the things Frank Rich brings to a show like Succession is his lockbox of a memory about being the New York theater critic, New York Times theater critic for a quarter century. And that's how you end up with J. Smith Cameron and David Raish and Fisher Stevens. Oh, I thought you were going to think say that's how you end up with the plot of uh, Connor, Connor <laughs> turning uh, Willis play into an ironic hot ticket. I think that is a more recent invention. I yeah. feel like, like, you know, if Carrie the musical had done that in the 80s, then maybe it would still be running today. But do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. All of these actors, or even Alan Ruck, like these actors are there. Any show could have hired them, and some did. They've all had, you know, they've all had good careers, whether it's Rectify or Sledgehammer. But they're so, so, so strong, and they deliver with such an incredibly high batting average that I, I, I do wonder if that's that's something that's underappreciated. Do you you notice any because like because the show it. It's basic. Its engine is this tension and this tug of war between factions of the family. Do you ever notice any uh, decline in not Brian Cox's but Logan's fastball, his faculties, his sharpness, his ability to manage a situation? Because it seems like you know, I, I think that that would be kind of an interesting thing to monitor over the course of the season. The show does a really good job of these subtle character changes, like as. Roman went mm-hmm. through like second season and went through the hostage situation and comes out, kills the deal that came out of the hostage situation and kind of shows himself to his father to be like uh, maybe a little bit much more mature. He obviously went back on that by calling him and kind of basically begging for the job. And his father's like Roman's out. But what do you notice anything different with the character of Logan? Yes. I, I, to the Roman point, I think he lost the job, not because he begged for it, but because he said Jerry would be good too. Oh, Okay. That's the moment when he wasn't a killer, when he was supportive of someone else. I think that's when he lost it in his father's eyes. Uh, I'm glad you asked about Logan, because I did notice, I, I felt a little different, um, and I wasn't sure if it was Brian Cox playing it differently. Has, he, has the character or actor lost his fastball slightly? But I, I don't think that's the case. I think that the, the actorly decision 
was that he has absorbed a body blow. Yeah. And, um, you know, then roars back to life, obviously, with his only remaining uh, card, which is, you know, righteous warlike fury. But I think that one of the ways the show has tweaked itself and learned from previous decisions is the show now treats Logan like the son. And the rest of the story, not the son in terms of Kendall, S-U-N, and the rest of the, the characters orbit and yeah. live at the good graces of whether it's shining on them or not. It's one of the subtle reasons why the removal of Marsha, who I'm sure will come back at some point, I think has been really crucial. I don't think we really want to know Logan once the door closes, when he's in bed or feeling weak or yeah. confused. I think that, the, 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 especially where we are at this point in the story, his irrational, fury-based, strongman decision-making that's causing everyone to scramble. They don't know whether they're going to Asia or, uh, you know, uh, the, or the Caribbean. That's serving the story in a really yeah. good way. It doesn't. It, it, I think if we knew more about where he was and what this actually felt like for him, if he had a, you know, almost like the role Holly Hunter was briefly playing with him in season two, it would step on what the drama needs to accomplish. There's there's very few people who he actually speaks to. You know, I mean, yes. we get a little bit of that with the kids. Holly Hunter, there were a couple of the intimate moments there, but for the most part, we're not going to get a, a scene in the new season right away where Logan turns to the camera essentially and says, you know, in the second season when it ended and I was maybe smirking, but I was also maybe grimacing, let me explain. It doesn't happen that way. The reason why I asked you though, and I, the reason why I think you you made such a good, that's such a good point about the character is when he asks, after being quiet for some time, when he asks what, whether or not the kids knew that this was going to happen. Yeah. He seems wounded. You know, he seems yeah. dinged a little bit. And I thought, and it made me remember that like, this is a guy who's been under an incredible amount of stress the entire series. Sick. Wife leaves him. Kids are always basically trying to stab him in the back. Corporate takeovers left and right. Failed corporate takeovers left yeah. and right. And, you know, it, it has to eventually wear on somebody. I mean, he's not a, a superhuman. No, but I think that that the um, answer to what you're asking comes in the moment right before he asks the kids, and he's he's in that same chair, dining only on saliva and adrenaline, and uh, the Kendall call, mm -hmm. because the, once you get past the Jack and the Beanstalk bluster, we see I think the 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 backstory of the smile at the end of season two, because he's like, you played, that was a good play, that was I respect you, I respect you, competitor. That was the right play. Now you brought me to the table. Now what do you want? Right. And what he learns from that phone call and what he begins to feel, I think, internally, which influences his behavior, is that it's not, as we were saying a moment ago, this is not a corporate play. This is an Oedipal fury. This is the part of the world that he denies and doesn't want to exist in, which is the emotion part, the right. family part. And that's the most destabilizing place for him to be. And he's briefly there. And then after the last betrayal of Shiv, and I guess there's the last betrayal, this is succession. Uh, the attorney stuff, he's like, you know, get me, get me Colonel Kurtz, we're going to firebomb everything. <laughs> Any other uh, stuff from your notebook that you want to get out there before we, we wrap this up? I mean, I just want to say that the reason why I love this show, and um, I can't imagine that ever changing, is because the show in its you know, it's 58 minutes. Unlike most 58-minute shows, you don't feel it. I was surprised oh, when it was over. I wished it had been twice as long. 
there's so much going on, but there is always time for Carl to need a sandwich. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that is a guiding principle for how to make something special and endearing that you as a showrunner and as a writer and as an executive producer, listening to people, feeling the cast, understanding what you have, so many voices in your head, you can calibrate the fact that if you have David Raish just sitting there needing a sandwich, like the character, and you have David Raish, the actor, playing a character who, you know, the breadcrumbs we get about him, not breadcrumbs from a sandwich because he wasn't allowed to get one, uh, are that he's some sort of whoremonger, right? Like yeah. that's the only <laughs> joke they make about him. Uh <laughs> Your sports they made it last season too. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just makes the experience that much richer, and that more than anything. I know it sounds like a small thing, but that's why I'm just in the tank. I just, There's a great detail in the New Yorker story about Jesse Armstrong and the and the making of this season. Where and we talked about this before on the pod, but they start uh, writers' room sessions at Succession, going over what the writers did the night before. Like, what did you have for dinner? Did you just eat pad yes. thai and watch a movie, or did you? Do- that kind of detail of that guy needing a sandwich has to come out of conversations like that. That of just mm-hmm. like I had to do this, but I just couldn't move unless I had like yeah. a protein. Yeah, and, and and knowing people, you know your writers, and you know the personalities they're bringing, and that serves as a kind of like VR proxy for who's in the room uh, fictionally. Because three seasons in, what must be so fun? I keep going back to that word. That's the feeling I get from watching it, and I just can't help but intuit that's what they're feeling making it. Okay, you've got Logan, you've got Tom, you've got Jerry, you've got uh, Frank and Carl and uh, Fisher, Steven, Hugo. You've got so you've, these Hugo. are the people in the room. Three seasons in, you're you're breaking the scene. You're talking about dialogue. You know what the scene has to accomplish. Okay, so Logan is going to run through the list of candidates. People are going to put themselves forward again. Okay, but now what? What's Jerry really thinking? What's she doing? What's Tom, Tom's going to go to the bathroom? Who's going to come get him and you know be suspicious? Hugo, how, what's he going to say? Like all of these things are in play and these writers know these characters and they love knowing them. And that love extends to us watching it. Yeah, uh, another uh, a great episode to start a season of TV that we can't be more excited about. Um, I think we can, just because of the like limits of the episode itself, there's not a ton of breadcrumb trails as to where the season is going to go. I would love to, I, I, I'm fairly certain without having seen the next episode that Shiv is on her way to Kendall's yeah. at least for some kind of conversation. Sana Lathan was very cool to see her. I hope uh, she gets to get some, some really good jokes in soon. I'm excited for like the additions to the cast with Skarsgård and uh, Adrian Brody in episodes to come as we've seen from the trailer. But yeah, man, every Sunday night or at least for the next few Sunday nights, Andy and I will be here on The Watch breaking down the new episode. Also, Sean and Joanna Robinson on Wednesdays on the Ringer uh, Prestige TV pod and Waz and I on Fridays kind of looking forward to the next episode. Any final notes? No, just um, I hope there was no other news this weekend. Um, yes, exactly. This, this is we're our Monday show. We are pre-recording this, so this is our Monday show. I hope there's no. I hope they didn't greenlight five more Ghostbusters movies. My God! Well, that'll just give us more time to lick our chops and break out the um, whatever. Um, we'll cover it on Thursday. Yeah, we were uh, produced tonight by Kaya McMullen. Thanks for listening to the watch. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. 